Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We've got a compelling vision of the creator God, his beautiful creation, and his image bearers all flourishing as God intended. But it doesn't last long. Today we enter chapter 3 and tragedy strikes. Before we uh, pick up the text, I'll ask that you'll join me in a quick prayer. Jesus, we uh, come before you uh, humbled at who you are. Uh, humbled at what you have done for us on the cross. And I pray, God, that as we uh, examine this uh, ancient text, that it would speak directly into our lives today, that you would speak to us about who you are, about the nature of the reality that we live in, about uh, who each and every one of us is uh, as an image bearer, as as an adopted son or daughter in the family of God. Would you speak to us Uh, truth, the truth about who we are, the truth about the reality that we live in, and would that truth uh, set us free. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And already, we have more questions than we could possibly answer on a single Sunday. Who is this serpent? Where does the serpent come from? Why is the serpent evil? Why is the serpent trying to undermine God? The text isn't clear. We are told later on in the New Testament 
that the serpent is Satan, or the great enemy of God and humanity. But why is Satan pictured as a snake? And how did he get in the garden? And how long has he been set against God? Again, the text isn't clear. In either case, it seems that Eden was set up in the middle of a war zone, in the midst of a spiritual battle that was raging well before humanity was created. And thus, when humanity is created, they are told to subdue that which is untamed and wild and stands in opposition to God. Rule over all the creatures that move along the ground. Continue to bring order and beauty into the world in partnership with God. But there will be elements within the created order that are chaotic and even evil and must be subdued. Several scholars note that the term subdue in Hebrew is actually a warfare word that was used usually in a decisive and violent manner. Most of creation is good, and and God created it, and it just needs to be cultivated and cared for. But something out there is going to be evil and undermining and dangerous and chaotic, and Adam and Eve were to forcefully subdue those chaotic elements. And in fact, the original audience wouldn't have known that the serpent was Satan per se, but they would have viewed the serpent as a chaos creature. And so the way the text read in the ancient world was that there was chaos. God took the the, the world, the universe, from a state of chaos into a place of ordered beauty, brought Adam and Eve into that ordered beauty, telling them to continue it. And now in chapter 3, we get this agent of chaos coming in in an attempt to return creation to the chaos from which God brought it. Satan is the first anarchist. And his tactic is rather ingenious. We are told that the serpent is crafty or cunning or shrewd, and it shows in the strategy he advances. Notice that while the serpent hates God and creation, he doesn't come to physically destroy God's image bearers or physically attack Adam and Eve. His motives are as dark and insidious as any motives could be. But his tactic is his weapon of choice is not to come in with force or violence. His weapon of choice is an idea. Satan tries to undermine God and destroy humanity with an idea. Here's how it plays out. In reality, God is good, the tree is evil or off limits, and we are to trust 
God. But Satan comes in with a new idea, a weaponized idea, an, an insidious thought, a poisonous seed to be planted in the minds of Adam and Eve. He says, no, 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 God is evil. The tree is good. Trust me. Do you see how that works? And it all starts with questions. Hey, did God really say you aren't to eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He's testing their understanding of God and creation. He's looking for the weak spots. And Eve responds, actually, we can eat from any tree in the garden, just not the one in the middle. And then she adds something rather curious. She says, we can't even touch it or we will die. And you'll notice in the text that, that God never said that. But somehow Adam and Eve have added to what God said. And the cracks in their understanding are already starting to show. And then Satan drops the bomb. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, you've got it all wrong. I've got it right. Let me tell you. Hey, this God guy, he's not as good as you think he is. He's trying to keep you in the dark. He wants you to be naive. You know what I think? I think God might be an insecure tyrant. And, and he just wants to keep you in bondage. He's withholding from you. He doesn't trust you. Why do you trust him? Don't trust him. Trust me. Trust yourself. Trust your heart. Look at it. Doesn't it look nice? Take it. Take it, and you will be like him. Seize power and autonomy and control for yourself. And they do. And the effects of this moment are catastrophic. In a single moment, in response to a single lie, Adam and Eve break trust with God. They listen to the serpent. They take and they eat and, and they taste and experience the knowledge of good and evil. But really, the deeper problem is that they've chosen to seize moral autonomy for themselves. They now have the power. Their act is an act of rebellion. They have chosen the way of self-sufficiency, which says, I know best. I can only trust myself and my impulses. And God is not as good as we were made to believe. Welcome to the human race. And from this moment forward, everything changes. 
This event is what theologians call the fall, in which humanity falls from their place of privilege within the garden and falls into rebellion, sin, and death. Before this moment, there is no sin. There is no rebellion. But as a result of both, we now experience death. Up to this moment, humanity has had open and uninterrupted intimacy with God. And within the garden, they had access to the tree of life, which kept death at bay. But the, the, now everything is going to change. Adam and Eve were not made immortal in the garden. In fact, the whole point of emphasizing Adam being made from dust was to show that he was, in fact, mortal. But within the garden, they had special access to the tree of life, which kept death and decay and all of its related processes at bay. And if they had stayed there, they would not have experienced death. But now, with sin and rebellion entering the scene, relationship with God is fractured, and they cannot stay in the garden or, or the holy of holies, the, the center of God's temple, the center of his earthly presence. Instead, they are ejected and subject to death. If you still have your Bibles open, look down at verse 22. Uh, this is what happens, happens next. And then, uh, and the Lord God said, this is verse 22, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer do we enjoy free and open intimacy with God. No longer do they have access to eternal life. Everything has changed. And you see it right here in the text. The very next things that we read about are Adam and Eve hiding from God and from one another, blame shifting and experiencing shame. It instantly all of the free and open and intimate relationships that were represented in the garden uh, become uh, broken and shattered. And from this moment forward, humanity is in a state of depravity, meaning two things, that we are bent towards sin and we easily listen to Satan. We are, from this moment forward, curved in on ourselves, inclined toward evil, bent out of shape, susceptible to the lies that drive evil in the world. Everything begins to go terribly 
wrong. And the original audience would have seen this clearly in the text of Genesis. A shallow reading of Genesis, like the one um, that, that I would have given it as a new Christian, would just say, looks like God made an arbitrary rule. And, and human beings broke that arbitrary rule by eating the wrong fruit. And then God got really mad about it. That was kind of how I used to read Genesis. When in reality, what's actually happening in the fall of humanity is far more layered and complex. First off, it's worth pointing out that Adam and Eve are not proper names in the way that we think of them. That's why from here forward in all of the rest of scripture, you never meet another Adam or another Eve. And the reason is that the word for Adam in Hebrew is actually humanity, and the word for Eve is life. And the serpent would have been sort of a stock imagery in the ancient world for evil. And so if you were among the original Hebrew audience, Genesis might have read something like this. Humanity, life, and evil are all hanging out in a garden. And evil says to life and humanity, I'm actually really good. I'll show you where true life is found. I'll show you what humanity was really intended to be. That can't be good. And the plot only thickens from there. When we examine the hierarchy that God established in chapters 1 and 2, within God's well-ordered creation, God is creator and king. He has created angelic beings and, uh, and then human beings, and we're told by the psalmist that humans are created a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and told to rule over what? Creation, including the things that move along the ground. What happens in chapter 3? Satan comes as a serpent as part of the created order, as something that moves along the grounds. And by planting the right lie, he's essentially found a way to rule over Adam and Eve and convince them to place themselves above God. I mean, talk about a return to chaos. Talk about disordering God's well-created universe. Could anything be more backwards? And within these short couple of verses, we see this massive distortion of everything that God set in motion. Here is a, a brief summary of some of the information and highlights that we saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We learned that God is good, that God is king over creation, 
that humans are made in God's image, that they are made to rule and reign, that they are made to subdue chaos and evil, that they are made to work and cultivate creation, that they are made male and female, that marriage is beautiful, they're told to have sex and make babies, to multiply. And in the end of chapter two, God, humanity, and creation are all well-ordered and flourishing, what the Hebrews called shalom. Everything is looking pretty awesome at that point. But notice what Satan has done. He comes in, and with a few simple words, he says, hey, God is not good. God is not fit to be king. And humans are not in God's image, but they could be. If you follow me and do it my way, then you will be like God. What a tragedy. Humanity was already like God in the ways that God intended. We were made in his image. We were in his presence without sin and death. In all the ways that he wanted us to be like him, we were already like him. And yet Satan says, hey, what about this thing? And all of a sudden, we're not so sure. So we take the bait. As a result of our rebellion, the serpent rules over us. Chaos won the day. Work is hard. Male and female tend to be at odds. Our sexuality is often bent and warped, disordered. Marriage is difficult and childbirth is painful. What a tragic reversal of everything that God set in motion in chapters 1 and 2. All of a sudden, we hit chapter 3, and we have all sorts of problems. Now evil has successfully infiltrated the world. Humanity is subject to lies and Satan and sin and death. Relationships are fractured. Work is difficult. Marriage is anything but effortless. And life is just hard. Two weeks ago, uh, my wife gave birth to our third child. Uh, This is uh, Caleb Deason. Uh, born Christmas Eve Eve, uh, with more hair than I have, uh, which was exciting. Uh, But uh, after uh, hours of pain, true to the pages of Genesis 3, childbirth is very painful, uh, not for me necessarily, uh, but for my wife. And after hours of pain, there's this uh, moment, this beautiful moment, when the baby is actually born into the world. And we've had three children, so I've had to ex- gotten to experience this. That was an honest mistake. I've, I've gotten the privilege of experiencing this three times. And, and there's this moment, for those of you who have witnessed the birth of, of a child, you know there's this moment when the child is born that's, that's almost holy. There's like this transcendent moment right as the baby's coming into the world. And despite all the, of the pain, 
it just all of a sudden gives birth to this indescribable joy. And, and I always have tears in my eyes. I just can't quite put my finger on why it's so beautiful. But all of a sudden, this, this joy breaks in, and there's this new baby in the world. Everything else in that moment kind of melts away. And it's just you and this, this new life that's coming into the world. And, and in those moments, you get this sense of, oh, man, th- this is life that is truly life. This is a beautiful, transcendent moment. The, the presence of God is in this place. Surely this is a taste uh, of, of life as God intended it. We were uh, released from the hospital. He was born Christmas Eve Eve, so we were released from the hospital um, Christmas Eve. We had um, Christmas Day at home with the family and our newborn, uh, and life was really, really good. We were on top of the world. Uh, But fast forward another uh, 24 hours, and Caleb is readmitted to the hospital for uh, jaundice, which isn't life-threatening or anything. Uh, But we were then sitting with him, the day after Christmas, we're sitting with him in the NICU, and he's on his treatment bed. But the next bed over, there's another baby that's just barely hit three pounds and and is struggling to survive. And, And you start looking around the NICU, and there's dozens of babies who are facing life-threatening illnesses, some of whom have already been exposed or addicted to narcotics, some of whom will never leave that place. And, and just that quickly, you're confronted with the reality of the human struggle. One day we're celebrating life, the next day you're sitting there face-to-face with death. You're reminded of how difficult it is to be human. And uh, after a couple sleepless nights uh, in the NICU, we were finally released to go home. Uh, And when we got home, we found out that our two-year-old and our three-year-old had both gotten the flu. Um, So they're like knocked out, and then my wife's starting to get sick, and instantly we went from the hospital to me kind of trying to take care of a bunch of sick people and a newborn, and and everyone was kind of struggling, and there was this moment after a couple days of of struggling at home, there was this moment where all three of our boys um, were crying from different rooms about different things, and my wife just took a deep breath and she turned to me and she said, why does life have to be so hard? <laughs> it, it, isn't that the million dollar question? It, isn't that the question that humanity is wrestling with? And she didn't say it in a despairing way, but many of us have. Why does life have to be so hard? Why is there so much evil and darkness and chaos in the world? Why does it bother us so much that there's evil and darkness and chaos? Why is work difficult and childbirth is painful and and marriage takes effort and death is always knocking at the door? 
Why is it so hard to be human? And the answer actually starts right here in a garden called delight where life and humanity and evil are having a little conversation together and a poisonous lie is planted. The first domino is tipped and they have been endlessly tipping ever since. Why is the world the way that it is? Why do we encounter evil out there and evil in our own hearts? Why does every human being have this sense of justice and the way that things ought to be but aren't? Why do we all thirst for a life beyond the bitter reality that we're so often confronted with? Why do we see death as an alien invader into God's good creation? And the short answer is that you were made for the garden. Humans were made to to be in a trusting relationship with God under his loving, life-giving kingship in which we were to walk in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And we don't live in that world anymore, but we hunger for it. We long to go back. And from chapter 3 onward, the scriptures are going to trace that story. Uh, The story of God and humanity. The story of God coming to win humanity back to himself and to bring us back into the garden. But after hundreds of pages of ongoing human rebellion and sin and failure, the Old Testament ends and we're kind of left hanging Humanity is still subject to Satan and sin and death. Our hearts are still bent towards sin. We still listen to the enemy and become slaves to the one that we obey. And then the New Testament starts. With the birth of a child who is said to be both God and man, the one who is to be king. And it is prophesied that this child will be the one who at last saves humanity from her sin and rebellion, who has come to give humanity a new heart altogether that is no longer in rebellion and opposition to God. It is prophesied that this child might be the one to conquer death itself. All that is set in motion in the rebellion of chapter 3 finds its resolution in Jesus the Messiah. 
in Jesus, the curse of the fall is coming undone. God has become king once more, and those who come under his kingship curiously find themselves freed from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. The captives are set free and released from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And though you still have a death to die, death has lost its sting. It has no power over you. And as a follower of Jesus, he says, those who follow me will not truly die at all but will pass from one life into an even greater life. The scriptures end in the book of Revelation with Jesus on the throne, surrounded by a renewed humanity who have passed through death and into resurrection, never to die again. We will find ourselves... One day, not in a garden, but in a garden-like city where we will once again walk with God in the cool of the day and take and eat from the tree of life. God's goal is to bring humanity back into the garden where all of the wounds that this world has inflicted on the faithful will at last be completely and utterly healed, and we will experience life that is truly life. Something unspeakably beautiful and beyond what we can even begin to comprehend as we sit in the brokenness of this world. And so as followers of Jesus... We have unqualified hope for the future, and we see Jesus as the ultimate hero and the center of the biblical storyline. Jesus came to defeat and conquer every enemy that gained power over us in chapter 3 and to make a way for us to be with him once more. And one day, all of those enemies will melt away into the background and be wiped off the face of the map, never to be encountered again. No more lies, no more Satan, no more rebellion, no more death. All of it will be wiped away. And we look forward to that day. And we live in light of that day. But in the meantime, we remember that we aren't there yet. That this place is not the garden. And in fact, it's a war zone. Though Jesus holds the victory in his hands, the battle still rages on. Satan still holds sway over most of the human race. The majority of people on earth are currently facing the prospect of death with no form of hope whatsoever. Sin still has its way with most of us. And every morning when we wake up, we have to choose which voice we're going to follow. We have to choose which voice we're going to listen to. 
Because Satan hasn't stopped speaking. And he hasn't stopped planting poisonous seeds. And his tactics actually haven't changed much in all of the countless thousands of years that have gone by. From that day to this one. God is still good. Satan is still evil. And and he would still love for you to believe that the reverse is actually true. And God says, hey, those who trust in my son are forgiven and righteous. And Satan says, are you sure? Because you look pretty sinful to me. And God says that he loves you and that he wants to be with you. And Satan says, yeah, right. Who would want to be with you? You really think God loves you? I wouldn't. If he does, he probably regrets it. And God says, marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And Satan says, did God really say? And God says, be generous with others and love your enemies. Did God really say? And God says, at the end of the age, he's going to resurrect you from the dead so that you can stand before him face to face. Did God really say? And God says that sex is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed exclusively in marriage. And Satan comes along with the same old game. Did God really say? Hmm, I'm not so sure. And neither are you. I wonder why he would say something like that. Do you think he's actually good? Do you think he actually cares about you? Do do you think he actually knows best? I, I think he's probably holding out on you. He wants to keep you in the dark. Oh, poor little you. Look how you're suffering. You won't certainly die. Surely God isn't qualified to define good and evil. Maybe you should. I think you'd be better at it. Why don't you take him off the throne? Why don't you go for it? Look, taste, touch, go. You know best. Trust your heart. Trust me. You have a real enemy with a real voice in your ear. You were born into a war zone. And this isn't the garden. But just like the garden, you have to choose which voice you're going to believe. The word of the serpent or the word of God. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, I want you to remember three things. 
You live in a war zone. Satan hasn't stopped lying. And the future is more glorious than you could possibly imagine. This life in the here and now, hour by hour, day by day, it's a mixed bag. Life and death, joy and pain, victory and defeat are constantly walking hand in hand. We feel the weight of this world. The war still rages on, and in coming to Jesus, you have switched sides in that war. You've moved from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and you now have the opportunity not just to identify the lies that are being spoken, but to walk in victory over them. We belong to the one who faced Satan head on in the desert, and one. The only human being who has stood up to the best of what Satan had to throw at him and didn't take the bait. And as a result, we can now be free. Is Satan still lying? Yes. Are those lies still effective? Absolutely Yes. Will we be tempted to take the bait? Sure. But the scriptures say that we are not unaware of his schemes. Because of Christ, because of the text of scripture, we're on to his game. We're understanding how he operates. We know how he works, and we've been given every tool to be successful in this battle. We walk under the authority of the one who chose the cross, where Satan, sin, and death were conquered. You walk in his power and in his authority. He's given that to you. We are filled with the very spirit of the living God. We have the truth of scripture to stand on. We have the community of God to surround and support and help and encourage and pray. And because of the cross, we have no reason left to hide. When we stumble, instead of going the way of Adam and Eve, we have the privilege of coming straight to God. We have nothing to hide from God, and we have nothing to hide from one another. Why not? Because our righteousness is found in Christ. Our identity is rooted in Christ. It's not about us. It's not about you. We can't earn any of it, all of it has been freely given. Meaning that Satan has nothing left to threaten you with. Nothing. He has been completely disarmed in your presence because of the cross. He has nothing to do but sling empty accusation and temptation at a people who have already been bought by the blood of Christ. Never again 
are we bound to say yes to him? We have community, we have the scriptures, and we walk moment by moment, day by day, with the God who already holds the victory in his hand. No power of hell, no scheme of Satan, no cultural narrative, no sin or mistake, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not even death. And one day, we will open newly resurrected eyes and find ourselves in a garden-like city where we will at last experience the fullness of life with God. And until that day, we stand in the victory of Christ and we fight the good fight of the faith until we've breathed our last breath or until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you born as the offspring of Adam and Eve, as uh, full participants in the human race, and originally as full participants in the human rebellion. We know all too well firsthand the truth embedded in this story. We know better than, than anything else in creation. We know what it feels like to be human. We know what it feels like for, for that lie to drop and, and find that soft spot and that weak point and sink in deep and take root and grow. We are all too familiar with that. But Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we also recognize that as a result of what you did on the cross, we are free. We are free of sin. We are free of shame. We are free of condemnation. We no longer belong to the darkness. We belong to you. And as a result, as, as we walk with you, Jesus, as we model our thoughts and our heart and our mind and our lives after you, as we're filled with your spirit, as we're transformed by the power of the gospel, we recognize that we go from one degree of freedom to another, that we grow in our freedom as we walk with you. And so Jesus, as we uh, finish up and as we prepare to head to the tables, uh, I pray that you would speak to us this morning because whether we recognize it or not, we actually hear the voice of the enemy all the time all the time. And, and we think it's us most of the time. Most of the time, I just think it's me. I just think it's my own, my own thoughts, my own wandering, my own fantasy. And in reality, it, it's that voice that we've become all too accustomed to. We, we know we're beginning to discern that voice, the voice of the enemy, and, and the ways that it has disillusioned us, led us astray. God, would we also be the people who, who are growing in our discernment of your voice. And Jesus, the reason that it's so hard to believe you when you speak 
is that most of the time it just sounds too good to be true. We've heard so much accusation. We've had so much of the weight of this world on us that when you finally come to speak, sometimes we just don't believe you. It just sounds too outlandish. You couldn't actually believe that about us. We know who we are because Satan's told us already. And so as we come into this place, God, as we come to the table to receive from you, I pray that the voice of the enemy would be silenced in this place. And I pray that it's your voice that we would hear. Would you speak words of truth and words of healing in this place? Continue the process of setting your children free. Show us what it looks like to walk in your victory and to believe uh, the, the counterintuitive beauty of the gospel. And we pray this in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.